We've told you what we expect for the year ahead. Now today we'll tell you what would disrupt that view. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of January 16th, 2023, and we spent the last few weeks taking you through our full 2023 outlook. And when we and other investors sit down and think about an outlook for the year or whatever period of time ahead, you tend to consider not only your base case view, but also reasonable upside and downside scenarios, the areas where your outlook might go wrong. And the issue is, is that the risks tend to cover what's likely and predictable. And as we've learned in the last couple of years, the biggest market movers haven't been all that predictable at all. So today I'll be joined by Julia Herman and Michael Legalbo for a discussion about black swans, the high impact, unpredictable events that have the potential to disrupt investor consensus in the coming year. We just published a full report on these, which is available on our website at newyorklifeinvestments.com and by clicking the insights tab, or you can check our LinkedIn pages for the link. Lauren, let me add to that context that you've just given about why we felt the need to write this piece and write it now. The coming year is full of uncertainty and every year is, but this year feels particularly uncertain because we're looking at potentially a recession ahead. But we've observed that much of the financial community is hugging consensus views around inflation, interest rates, and that likelihood of recession. So as you mentioned, the last three years have been dominated by the risks that had been thought impossible or next to impossible at the start of the year. We thought it was a worthy exercise to expand our thinking a bit. Yeah, it's a good point. If the last few years haven't taught us that lesson, I'm not sure what will. If you think about the COVID-19 pandemic, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, these were shocks previously considered impossible or otherwise highly unlikely, and then they did happen, and they've had major impacts on economic growth, markets, and human life. Exactly. And it's also worth noting that these were not just singular shocks. They've forced us to structurally reconsider what we think about supply chains, national interests, international relations, everything that we would find in our normal college textbooks. So these black swans are not just those singular events that might produce positive or negative price action for a week or something. They can instead change market dynamics for years, maybe decades. One thing I love about this team is its ability and willingness to think outside the box. I want to highlight something Julia just hinted at, that these black swan risks aren't all bad, like a peace deal between Ukraine and Russia, for example. So whether these highly improbable events have upside or downside implications for the markets, scenario analysis serves an important purpose. It helps us both identify market vulnerabilities and improve our portfolio preparedness. I think just as well, black swan analysis is a type of strategic thinking that can be compared to the old military adage, prepare for the next war, not the last. Though we aren't positioned towards these risks, we are prepared should they come to fruition. Yeah, I really love that point. And as our research on geopolitical risks and portfolio resilience suggests, this is a best practice piece, which is also available on our website if you're interested. Investors flexing their analytic muscles around different scenarios can help them to react to events even the ones that weren't on their list. 
Okay, now that we fully contextualized this piece, let's finally get into it. We had a big, fun, long, interesting list of potential disruptors for 2023, and we narrowed it down to just six in our research piece. And today, we're going to focus on only three of those six. The first perspective, Black Swan for 2023, that we'll discuss has to do with the Bank of Japan's yield curve control policy and how it could potentially disrupt, even bring chaos to the Japanese pension market. This risk we must discuss first because we've actually already seen an aspect of the risk come true, one of the signposts of the risk, and that the Bank of Japan has already adjusted its yield curve control policy just before the end of last year. So Julia, can you help catch us up? Absolutely. And in just the past few days, we've gotten a ton of news flow around this subject. So I'm glad we get to cover it today. For some context, it's almost hard to imagine now, I know, but we have to remember that before inflation became such an issue worldwide in the past few years, we had been in a very long period of a low inflation, low yield, and at times worries about a structurally low economic growth environment. People were talking about lower for longer, and a lot of investors associated these issues with Europe. But perhaps nowhere on earth were these concerns more poignant about an anemic economy than in Japan. Japan has basically tried and failed to defibrillate its economy through the use of stimulative monetary policy for over two decades now. The latest version of these attempts was yield curve control, as you just said, Lauren, and that was implemented in 2016. The specific aim here was for the Bank of Japan, the BOJ, to sit on the short end of its yield curve, compressing yields and keeping the cost of money extremely low. The aim of this was to hopefully promote wage growth and therefore wage-led inflation, but they haven't been very successful thus far. So here's what sitting on the yield curve looks like in practice. The Bank of Japan maintains a band around zero in which it lets the yield on a 10-year government bond, or JGB, to fluctuate. If the yield ever exceeded the top of the band, the bank would purchase JGBs to reduce the yield and bring it back into that set band. And the band has widened slightly over time, but as a result, there's been a dramatic depreciation in the Japanese yen because the Bank of Japan was keeping Japanese bond yields low while other central banks were increasing interest rates and allowing yields to rise. So just a few weeks ago, on December 20th, the Bank of Japan surprised markets by widening its band from about 25 basis points around zero to about 50 basis points around zero to improve market functioning. Now, on the note of market functioning, it appears the Japanese markets have been weathering that latest policy change fairly well, along with the accompanying yield volatility. But we still believe that there are pockets of the Japanese market and economy that are unlikely to be prepared for a sudden rise in interest rates if the BOJ were to suddenly abandon this yield curve control policy or not be able to defend it any longer. Yeah, so you're you're bringing up a good point, which is that what has already happened in Japan is not the risk that we wrote about. What we're thinking about here with this more black swan type of risk is that a sudden rise in interest rates, if the BOJ chose to abandon yield curve control entirely, there are many areas of the Japanese economy that might not be ready for that sudden rise in interest rates. So Mike, how do you see that risk playing out if it, if it were to play out? I think the area of the Japanese market that could be hit hardest by a rate spike is the pension sector. Japan's pension market looks eerily similar to that of the UK before it experienced the pension crisis last October. Let me guess why. And it goes back to something Julia was saying earlier. When interest rates have been so low for so long as they've been in Japan, the UK, Europe, plenty of countries, 
pension funds and other investors had to add risk to achieve the target level of returns for their investment mandates. Exactly. Japanese pensions have used derivatives to hedge interest rate risk, like those UK pension funds who ultimately required a bailout from the central bank to remain solvent when yields spiked. Japanese insurers employ similar risky yield generating strategies to serve a shrinking and aging population, further increasing the fragility of this market. Worse even, it appears that like the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan has not implemented measures that would safeguard this market should it experience a rate shock, suggesting that a similar or worse outcome could occur in Japan. I'll finish by noting that a key signpost for this risk is in April, when the current Bank of Japan governor's term comes to an end. Pundits are speculating if a successor will do away with yield curve control and if the recent policy adjustment makes this more or less likely. Our base case assumes no change to yield curve control, but we'll be keeping an eye on the situation and looking for cracks in the market. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. And just one more thing that I want to mention, if this risk were to occur, if we think about how it would play out in markets, solvency issues in the Japanese pension sector could result in higher yields and a stronger yen. And that could have implications for the Japanese economy, which we can cover at another time. But there's at least one interesting potential upside scenario in this risk, which has to do with lower hedging costs if the yen were allowed to, to moderate more towards historically average levels. And in that context, it's actually U.S. private and public credit that could potentially benefit from this type of change. These are historically broad and liquid markets that have been attractive places for Japanese investors to find a longer duration exposure for their portfolios. So, okay, wrapping up that risk then, let's move on several thousand miles away to our next risk, which takes place in Iran. More specifically, we want to cover the risk that the ongoing protests topple the Islamic Republic, aka the current Iranian regime. And our base case is that the current regime retains power through its usual tactics of military force and censorship, among others. But there are some signs that these protests are different than the ones that Iran has had since its 1979 revolution. Just to give some context to our listeners, the original cause of the current protests was the murder of Masa Amini, a woman who died in the custody of the Iranian morality police. But the protests have broadened since that event, haven't they? Exactly, they have. And I think that the reason this movement recently passed its 100-day mark and it continues to surge, even as hundreds of protesters, including children, have been killed, is because Masa's death highlighted very commonly held values that the majority of Iranians have from all walks of life. And these have direct implications for regime change. So when I say this, we're relying on data from a polling organization called Gaman, which was started by two expat Iranian statisticians. And these two statisticians went to great lengths to find new and innovative polling methods that would allow people to answer questions honestly from within Iran, despite the suppression there. And these methods have been celebrated by the statistical community. They found that on average across gender, age, rural versus urban divides, education levels, an average of 73% of Iranians are against the mandatory imposition of the hijab in public. And of those who are against that mandatory imposition of the hijab, 84% want to live in a secular state. 
That's really interesting because what that data potentially does is tie those shared values that you're describing directly to calls for change in the enforcement of what are perceived to be different values from that commonly shared. And it's always hard to say that this time is different, but Michael, you did a deep dive into Iran's political history. Can you put today's protests into broader context? I did. The 1979 revolution in Iran is a famous geopolitical and historical event, but Iran has seen several large-scale movements since then that delivered limited change. We spent hours in the online archives of the New York Times and other publications to best understand the political economy of 1970s Iran and what made that revolution successful. Like today, the 1979 protests fought an oppressive government, called for pro-democratic transformation, and included Iranian women against mandatory veiling. But then how did the current regime, the Islamic Republic, come into power and become more oppressive? The regime at the time was able to leverage a network of mosques and clergy around the country to essentially usurp the protest movement and install its own leaders. This is an important point because we found that crucial to the success of a protest movement are clear leadership and a political agenda. What makes the protest movement today, like that in 1979, is the diverse coalition of support. Also, the goals of both movements are the same, not more government support or reform within the system, but large-scale change. But in order for today's protests to enact real change, they'll need to exhibit clear leadership capable of forming a new government. It's really interesting. But if I know one thing about the Middle East, it's that when you study an event, you can't think about only one country at a time. These countries are very interconnected. And if perhaps the three of us would say that we'd view a democratic solution to ongoing protests in Iran as potentially positive for the people there, we'd also have to admit that it would have complex impacts on the very delicate alliance structure of the region. Julia, I know that you study this. So Penny, for your thoughts. Well, I'm far from a Middle East geopolitics expert, but I did go to grad school with a lot of them, as I'm sure both of you did. Given that so much of the Middle East power balance is based on an antagonistic Iranian regime to many other regimes, in many ways, a democratic Iran could be so constructive, as it was the case when the Berlin Wall came down, for instance. It could very well open a path to de-escalation of current tensions between Iran's current regime and the governments of Saudi Arabia, Israel, other neighbors, the U.S. That said, a change in these structures can also contribute to unprecedented levels of global instability. Follow the money here. For example, Iran is a critical figure in funding the Assad regime in Syria. It's also helping to fund the proxy war with Saudi Arabia in Yemen, and it helps to fund Hezbollah. So shifting alliances could well prompt the U.S., China, and Russia to all attempt to expand influence in the region. Yeah, like I said, you can't think about just one country in this region, or frankly, any region, if we're being honest. But let's bring this specific subject back to the markets. If we were to see a regime change in Iran, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the energy markets. And I think it would be likely that the energy markets would move with the prospect of dropped sanctions and new oil supply if that were in the cards. But beyond oil, the severity and speed of impact to global markets from this event depends on the degree to which other countries become entangled to the tune of what you're describing, Julia. And I think of all the potential black swans that we identified, this risk probably contains the most market uncertainty because of how many different directions it could play out. Great. So that's the second black swan we're floating in our 2023 Swan Lake piece. Iran protests topple the Islamic regime. Let's cover just one more. The risk of rivals making power moves against the U.S. dollar. 
I think we have to talk about the potential moves against King Dollar this year, because like the prior risks we discussed, this risk has already seen notable developments. Today, the US dollar is the indisputable foundation of the global financial system, and this gives the United States a great deal of power. This power comes through as a reserve currency. The dollar makes up 60% of global currency reserves. It comes through commodities, as many are priced in dollars. And some countries choose to peg their currencies to the US dollar to stabilize their currency. And this also comes with both economic and political costs and benefits. We've been hearing a lot this year about how dollar centrism does not necessarily suit all governments. And there is a risk that some of those governments may be willing to accept the significant costs of throwing off the yoke of dollar dominance. So in the past year, historic levels of dollar strength, as well as growing anti-U.S. political pressures, have contributed to this risk that rivals move against the dollar. Now, I will just say, as we're talking about potential threats to dollar dominance, that this has been a concern that I've been hearing for my entire career. And so if we were going to talk about this risk for 2023, it's important to identify a couple of actual potential pain points for this year. And, and so we identified those. There's two that we mentioned in this piece, Hong Kong and Saudi Arabia. Julia, you want to start us off with Hong Kong? Absolutely. So for the past 39 years, the Monetary Authority of Hong Kong has been defending its peg, the Hong Kong dollar's conversion rate to the U.S. dollar. What that means is that the Monetary Authority, acting like the central bank, buys and sells currency in the open market using currency reserves to strengthen or weaken that currency along with the peg. So you kind of have to mirror what's going on with the dollar and with U.S. monetary policy. So as the U.S. dollar strengthened in the last year, Hong Kong central bank had to bleed through reserves. It had to sell more than 16% of its now roughly $400 billion in reserve assets to support the Hong Kong dollar defending the peg. So aside from just having to chase the U.S. dollar down, a lot of other countries, including Hong Kong, with currency pegs must follow that monetary policy of the anchor currency. When the Fed eases, those central banks can ease. But when the Fed has been hiking over the past year, the Hong Kong central bank is forced to hike rates as well. Well, Michael mentioned costs and benefits of a dollar peg, and this is one of the costs. It's really difficult to withstand higher rates depending on the time and place, and, and this is not the time for higher rates in the Hong Kong economy. Hong Kong's economy has been weakening due to the recent slowdown in economic growth in China, and 60% of Hong Kong's exports are sent to China, 10 times more than to the U.S. or to any other country. So any slowdown in China is certainly felt in Hong Kong directly, and independent centers Central bank would likely cut rates in this scenario, but the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the U.S. dollar, so the central bank doesn't have that capability. And so this tightening cycle that the U.S. has been going through, and therefore Hong Kong has been going through, again, at the wrong time for Hong Kong, has put significant pressure on Hong Kong's already anemic economy and asset prices. Exactly. To summarize, the dollar's strong, the peg is under strain, and in this black swan risk, China capitalizes on this vulnerability by exerting dominance over Hong Kong and potentially re-pegging the Hong Kong dollar, presumably to the Chinese yuan, because there doesn't seem to be another option there. Now, making this dramatic move, this would be a huge move for China to make, and doing it would actually be incredibly impractical for two reasons. Number one, the yuan itself, the Chinese yuan, is managed against its own basket of currencies, including the U.S. dollar. So the yuan has very little business serving as a base for a currency peg at all when it has its own base that it's having to follow. 
So second reason that this move would be impractical is that Hong Kong, as a global financial center, would experience catastrophic financial outflows potentially in this scenario. The issue here and why we think this risk could be possible is because Hong Kong's status as a global financial center is obviously not a policy priority for Beijing. This would also comprise a power move against the U.S. and the U.S. dollar, which the Chinese government might be prone to do. Great and very interesting analysis. And, and I'll just say that aside from China, it's probably Russia that most investors would put on the shortlist for wanting to get out from under the U.S. dollar umbrella. But we actually see the bigger risk of a power move against the dollar in Saudi Arabia. So, Mike, I'm going to throw this one your way. Why is that? Saudi Arabia sells oil priced in U.S. dollars. The petrodollar relationship is a huge part of why the dollar is the reserve currency. But to understand this relationship, we need to go back to the wild 1970s. I love a good story. Go for it. Okay, so back in the 1970s, an embargo by OPEC's Arab nations incensed at the United States for providing aid to Israel during the Yom Kippur War quadrupled oil prices. Inflation soared, the stock market crashed, and the U.S. economy was in a tailspin. Then, in 1974, President Nixon arranged a secret meeting between William Simon, the newly appointed U.S. Treasury Secretary, and the Saudis. Nixon said to Simon, don't come back without a deal. Simon had previously run the Treasury's desk at Solomon Brothers, and though he had little diplomatic experience, he knew the appeal of U.S. government debt. Simon was able to broker a deal in which Saudi Arabia would sell oil in dollars and reinvest its petrodollar revenue into U.S. treasuries, which finance U.S. spending. And I've got to ask here, how has this not been made into a movie yet? Do you think New York Life would be interested in expanding into the film industry? New York Life has been in the insurance business since 1845, but I can uh, run it up the flagpole and see what they say. Well, it's definitely a movie I'd want to watch. But the U.S.-Saudi relationship has come under myriad forms of stress recently. The Khashoggi murder, war in Yemen, efforts at an Iran deal, and the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan, among many, many others. Countries like Russia and China are capitalizing on this tension and campaigning for the Saudis to price oil contracts in other currencies. Just last month, China's President Xi visited Saudi Arabia and announced several strategic events between the two countries and announced several strategic investments between the two countries. No change was made to the Saudis' oil pricing policy, but this is evident of an evolving relationship. Any diversification in oil contract pricing would be a big step in breaking up the oil-dollar relationship and possibly dollar hegemony. Oh boy, you can see how complicated this type of risk gets very quickly and how interconnected the global economy is. And that's exactly the point. If a risk like this moves against the dollar were to unfold, investors would have to watch both the localized, so the Hong Kong or the Saudi Arabia impact, but also the global impacts of dollar depegging would have. Individually, on their own, each of these power moves would have immediate, severe implications for the local economies and markets. But of all the black swans that we identified, this is probably the slowest moving on the global front. Because while dollar appetite has shifted over time, it's shaped not only by investors, but also by business and consumer decisions in the real economy. And currently, no one currency is capable of replacing the dollar's reach, at least not very quickly. So with that, I'll say just one more thing, which is to keep in mind that none of these risks are in our base case. We really tried to think outside the box about the things that would disrupt investor consensus in 2023, because that has been so much of the feel in the market in 2020, 2021, and 2022. So for all that incredible analysis, Julia and Michael, thank you for some stellar research for our partners. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone.
that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters and we'll be back to our regular programming. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also read all of our views, including this Black Swans piece we've been discussing today at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com and clicking the Insights tab. Until next time, I'm Lauren Goodwin. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamax and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issue or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.